Well, good morning. <clears throat> I kind of back this into this. I know you're all here to hear Phil. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, with, with all due respect to Phil, I don't mean to embarrass Phil, but I do consider it an honor to be on the same program with Phil. I just have so much admiration from him. He's one of the most brilliant theological thinkers uh, in the world uh, today. And I don't say that just because he's my boss, <clears throat> but <laughs> maybe a me. <laughs> but uh, uh, Phil, it's an honor to be here with you, brother, on this platform. I was, uh, I don't know how many of you are members of here. I don't need a show of hands, but I don't know how many of you are members here at, uh, at Grace. But I was sharing with one of your elders earlier, uh, on last night, rather, uh, how courageous this church is for, for holding a conference like this. Um, you're going to hear from me uh, some very hard truths, okay? I- any of you who are listeners to the Just Thinking podcast, you already know what's coming. Uh, so I just want to get you ready in advance because you're going to hear me say some things that maybe make, make you squirm in your seat. Um, and that's fine. Uh, matter of fact, I think one problem with the evangelical church today is that we've had two little things said that make us squirm a little bit. We've, uh, I, I so appreciated what Phil said and what was reiterated by Nate a second ago about how we think the world's going to applaud us in our humble you know, abandonment of the, of the truth. Listen, the world doesn't care about you. And you need to stop caring that the world doesn't care. I promise you, I'm not joking. When you stop caring that the world doesn't care, your life will improve immediately. That's off script. That's for free. I've titled this message, The Problem is Enmity, Not Ethnicity. The Problem is Enmity, Not Ethnicity. And if you have your Bible or access to the Word of God, I'd appreciate you turning with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible translation, or as I like to say on the podcast, the non-Armenian standard Bible. (laughs) Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. For he himself, he, speaking of Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself, that is in Christ, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it, that is by the cross, having put to death the enmity. Enmity is a word that has all but disappeared from our contemporary lexicon. I mean, think about it. Not looking for a show of hands of any or anything, but think about this. When was the last time you used the word enmity in a conversation or heard someone else use that word? Exactly. Exactly my point. But despite its rare usage today, enmity is a word that carries significant weight and importance, particularly when considered within the context of Scripture. By the way, speaking of context, I want to say at the outset of this message that I am rather dogmatic that when it 
Christians engage in apologetics. That is, when we engage the culture in a defense of the truths of the gospel, it is critically important that we begin that defense by biblically defining the terms we use. I say that because words have meaning, and it is the meaning of words which, for better or worse, establish the context for our apologetics. By not defining our terms biblically, we risk engaging the world using the world's terms on the world's turf. Consequently, we run the risk of ceding the moral, ethical, and theological high ground to an unbelieving culture and end up losing the argument altogether. As Christians, to not stand on a solid biblical foundation as it relates to biblically defining our terms, that opens the door to pluralism. Pluralism is the idea that all beliefs are equally valid. As Dr. D.A. Carson declares in his book titled The Gagging of God, quote, an entire vision of reality is at stake. And let me pause in the quote here and say this, that that's why you're here this weekend, in case you didn't realize it. The reason you're here is because an entire vision of reality is at stake. Continuing with Dr. Carson's quote, one thing is very clear. It is quite impossible to be a Christian in any responsible use of that term and be a pluralist. The pluralist will explain the Christian and will doubtless conclude that the Christian is too tightly bound by tradition, naive in the area of epistemology, intolerant of other views, and so forth. Pluralists are inconsistent in that they want to be understood univocally while insisting that ancient authors, let alone God himself, cannot be understood univocally. This is exactly what Phil was talking about a second ago. They may have many religious experiences, but none of them deals with the heart of the human problem, the sin that is so deeply a part of our nature. In short, we must deal with massively clashing worldviews. Again, that is why you are here, because we are dealing with massively clashing worldviews. We must deal with massively clashing worldviews, and part of our responsibility is to explain competing worldviews from our vantage point. We cannot possibly engage at that level unless we ourselves have thoroughly grasped the biblical storyline and its entailed theology, unquote. Now, as apologists for the gospel, and let me say this, every believer in Christ is an apologist. The only question is, are you a good one or a bad one? As apologists for the gospel, it is vital that we not embrace the language of the culture as we endeavor to engage the culture. I want to repeat that. It is vital that we not embrace the language of the culture as we endeavor to engage the culture. Phil just spoke very eloquently on the, uh, the, the milieu in which we currently find ourselves and how, how, uh, how, how use of narrative is basically... Uh, been weaponized. I'm going to talk about that later this afternoon. But we can't embrace the language of the culture as we seek to engage the culture. Christians are to love others, yes, but not at the expense of the truth. We dilute the message of the gospel when we exchange biblical terms for the vernacular used by the world. As Pastor John MacArthur has said, quote, 
The health of the church and the impact of the church is always based on the church's ability to keep objective truth clear. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and the health of the church is always based on her ability to keep objective truth, that is, biblical revelation, clear, never to blur the line between truth and error. When theology is watered down, that line is rubbed out, unquote. Now, as calls for racial reconciliation and social justice increase both in fervency and in frequency, Christians must be willing to call a thing what the word of God calls it. What the culture calls racism, the Bible simply calls hate. That's 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11 and 1 John three fifteen. To show ethnic prejudice or ethnic partiality, which is, which is a more biblically accurate term for what society calls racism, to show ethnic prejudice or partiality toward another image bearer of God is sin, period. That's James 2.9. Hatred of any kind is a matter of the heart, which is why enmity, not ethnicity, is the root cause of the societal disharmony we are witnessing in the world today. Now, a little bit of exegesis here to, to just place what I'm about to say afterwards in some context. Now, in its singular form, because the plural form of the word occurs in Galatians 5.20, the word enmity appears only eight times across Scripture's 66 books. Those eight occurrences are found in Genesis 3.15, Numbers chapter 35, verses 21 and 22, Deuteronomy 4.42, Ezekiel 25.15, and Ezekiel 35, 5, and in Ephesians 2, verses 15 and 16. And in each of the aforementioned instances, the word enmity denotes a very intense, fierce, intentional, and deep-seated spirit of animosity or hostility between two parties that are in opposition to one another. In Ephesians 2, 15, the word enmity is the Greek noun Ekthra, that's E-C-H-T-H-R-A, Ekthra. The word Ekthra is the feminine form of the Greek adjective Ekthros, that's E-C-H-T-H-R-O-S, which means to hate or to be hostile to. Now, I mention that because for followers of Jesus Christ, the starting point of any discussion about reconciliation of any kind must be to first acknowledge that each of us is an enemy of God from the moment we are conceived in the womb. The 18th century Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards elaborated on that reality when he said this, quote, Natural men are greater enemies to God than they are to any other being whatsoever. Natural men may be very great enemies to their fellow creatures, but not so great as they are to God. There is no other being that so much stands in sinners' way in those things that they chiefly set their hearts upon as God. Men are wont to hate their enemies in proportion to two things, vis-a-vis -vis their opposition to what they look upon to be their best interest and their power and ability. A great and powerful enemy will be more hated than one who is weak and impotent, but none is so powerful as God. Man's enmity to others may be gotten over. Time may wear it out, and they may be reconciled. But natural men, without a mighty work of God to change their hearts, will never get over their enmity against God. They are greater enemies to God than they are to the devil, 
Yea, they treat the devil as their friend and master and join with him against God. Unquote. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, the fact is that you and I are congenital enemies of God. Consequently, we are also congenital enemies of one another. Enmity, not ethnicity, is why there can be no horizontal relationship that is man to man between me and you. There can be no horizontal reconciliation apart from vertical reconciliation first. Man to God. But in either case, whether vertical or horizontal, it is faith in Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit in regenerating the human heart that makes such reconciliation possible. Not any man-centered or man-concocted method. As the 18th century Welsh minister and Bible commentator Matthew Henry said, quote, If God justified and reconciled us when we're enemies, that's ekthros, enemies, much more will he then save us when we are justified and reconciled. The one who has done the greater which is to change us from enemies to friends, will certainly do the less, which is to treat us in a kind and friendly way when we are friends. The dying Jesus laid the foundation by making atonement for sin and bringing the enmity to an end. Now, sadly, the church's understanding of the biblical doctrine of enmity is so languid that it is virtually absent from our preaching and our apologetics. But there was one individual on whom the doctrine of enmity was not lost. His name was Jupiter Hammon. Jupiter like the planet. Hammon is spelled H-A-M-M-O-N. Jupiter Hammon. Jupiter Hammon was born a slave in October 1711. He died a slave sometime around the year 1806. Literally every breath, Every heartbeat, every blink of his eyes, every cough, every sneeze, and every hiccup that Jupiter Hammond experienced over the course of his 95 years on this earth was as a slave. On September 24, 1786, Jupiter Hammond gave a speech in New York City at the inaugural meeting of an organization called the African Society. Hammond's speech was titled, An Address to the Negroes of the State of New York also known as the Hammond Address. Among the remarks Hammond made in that speech was this sobering admonition. Quote, Now you may think that you are not enemies to God and that you do not hate him. But if your heart has not been changed and you have not become true Christians, you certainly are enemies to God and have been opposed to him since the day you were born. Unquote. Now I want to remind you at this point that Jupiter Hammond took every breath literally of his nearly 100 years of life in this sinful world is someone else's property. And yet the biblical doctrine of enmity is something that Hammond clearly understood. Contrary to what the common stereotype concerning slaves is, Hammond was not an un unintelligent or uneducated man. Both of Hammond's parents, Obadiah and Rose, were literate. Though a slave, Jupiter Hammond's owners, Henry and Rebecca Lloyd, both of whom were Anglican, provided him a rather rudimentary education through what was known as the Anglican Church in the Anglican Church as the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts System. So that was the missionary society of the Anglican Church, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. <clears throat> Hammond would go on to become the first black poet in the history of the United States to have his literary works published. 
I encourage you, not now, but I encourage you later, you should be listening to me. Later on, we have some time. Go, on, go online and look up Hammond's address to the Negroes of New York. It is stunning in its theological depth. Jupiter Hammond was a Christian. He was a Christian who was convinced of the sovereignty of God. So convinced, in fact, was he that the, in the absolute sovereignty of God and that God was in absolute control of everything that occurred in the world that he saw even his own enslavement as God's divine providence in his life. That, that is something the woke today could, cannot fathom. As Hammond declared in the aforementioned address to the Negroes of New York, quote, we live so little time in this world that it is no matter how wretched and miserable we are if it prepares us for heaven. What is 40, 50, or 60 years when compared to eternity? Unquote. Now remember, a man who lived nearly 100 years and spent nearly all, he spent all of his life as a slave is the guy who said this. We complain if we have to wait 30 seconds longer at a traffic signal. He spends a hundred, nearly a hundred years of his life, and yet he says, what, are, what is 40, 50, or 60 years when compared to eternity? Do you have that perspective? Though in bondage physically, Jupiter Hammond was a free man spiritually, perhaps even freer than some of you who are within the sound of my voice right now. I told you I was going to make you squirm. Hammond fully understood that emancipation from his slavery to sin was of greater concern and importance than being liberated from his physical shackles. It is my personal belief that Hammond's understanding of what scripture teaches about enmity demonstrates that he was more orthodox in his theology than many formally trained theologians today who have earned seminary degrees. But regardless of the level of theological acumen Hammond may have possessed, I'm convinced he would be criticized, if not altogether ostracized, by many evangelical social justicians today for holding to what they would undoubtedly regard as a hermeneutic of passivity, for having the temerity to believe that his subjugation to his white slave owners had been providentially ordained by God before the foundation of the world. Let me just digress here for a second. That the woke today would reject Jupiter Hammond because he believed that God was in sovereign control of everything you see reiterates the importance of you not just being a Christian but you must be a theologian do you understand the difference so you have people today who say people in the church especially the woke because, because slavery see, is the one topic that gets them all I'm in church. Let me <laughs> gets them upset. You mention the word, the word, just mention the word slavery, and bam, they just lose it. So they would treat Jupiter Hammond <laughs> like they treat me. Oh, Daryl, you just colonized. You just you just suffer from a colonized mind. Jupiter Hammond, you've been colonized. But here's a man who knows God. He didn't graduate from the Master Seminary. 
But most slaves learn how to read by reading the Bible. This man went on to be a poet laureate. He learned to read and write by reading the Bible. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he believed the Bible. He believed what the Bible said. So that he could accept even his own enslavement as God's providence in his life. Not looking for a show of hands, but what's the last thing you complained to God about? Just remind yourself of what, what was the last thing you complained to God about. I have no doubt whatsoever that Jupiter Hammond, were he alive today, will be labeled either a race traitor, a coon, an Uncle Tom, a house Negro, or worse, accused of not being enlightened or woke enough to the historical struggle for justice in America by those who are of a similar shade of melanin as he was. In other words, Hammond would be denigrated and dismissed, especially by many black social justice advocates today, for not beholden to what I refer to as the gospel of perpetual grievance. See, the woke will tell you that if anybody had a right to complain, it was a slave. It was a slave. The woke today are progenitors of the gospel of perpetual grievance. All they do is complain. I'll talk more about that this afternoon. If you can stand it. Booker T. Washington, the great educator and abolitionist of the 19th century, who himself was a slave for many years before he escaped the freedom. By the way, if you have not read Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, show yourself out. <laughs> that book should be in every American's library. I don't care what your, what your skin color is. Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. You should read it if you have not. But Washington spoke about those kinds of people. He wrote about those kinds of people, people who... Uh, behold to what I called earlier the gospel of perpetual grievance. Washington wrote in his book titled My Larger Education. Listen closely because you got to follow the logic here. Washington says this in his book titled My Larger Education. He tells this story. Quote, a story told to me by a colored man in South Carolina will illustrate how people sometimes get into situations where they do not like to part with their grievances. In a certain community, there was a colored doctor of the old school who knew little about modern ideas of medicine, but who in some way had gained the confidence of the people and had made considerable money by his own peculiar methods of treatment. In this community, there was an old lady who happened to be pretty well provided with this world's goods and who thought that she had a cancer. For 20 years, she had enjoyed the luxury of having this old doctor treat her for that cancer. As the old doctor became, thanks to the cancer and to other practice, pretty well to do, he decided to send one of his boys to a medical college. After graduating from the medical school, the young man returned home and his father took a vacation. During this time, the old lady who was afflicted with the cancer called in the young man who treated her. Within a few weeks, the cancer, or what was supposed to be the cancer, disappeared and the old lady declared herself well. When the father of the boy returned and found the patient on her feet and perfectly well, he was outraged. You following me? He called the young man before him and said, My son, I find that you have cured that cancer case of mine. Now, son, let me tell you something. 
I educated you on that cancer. I put you through high school, through, the, through college, and finally through the medical school on that cancer. And now you, with your new ideas of practicing medicine, have come here and cured that cancer. Well, let me tell you, son, you have started all wrong. How do you expect to make a living practicing medicine in that way? Unquote. You get the point. Washington went on to say this, quote, I'm afraid that there is a certain class of race problem solvers who don't want the patient to get well. Because as long as the disease holds out, they have not only an easy means of making a living, but also an easy medium through which to make themselves prominent before the public. If the patient gets well, an entire industry of victimhood will get cancer and die. This would be the best thing for the black community. Until blacks throw off the shroud of victimhood, they will be at the mercy of doctors who treat a cancer that does not exist, but that they are paying for. That's critical race theory. That's critical race theories. Critical race theories like Ibram makes Kendi, who blocked me on social media. If you're streaming this, Ibram, why did you do that? <laughs> let's, have, let's have a dialogue. <clears throat> but critical race theories are those doctors. They don't want the cancer to get well. They can't afford to. They don't want reconciliation. They need divisiveness in order to have a job. They're liars. They talk about anti-racism, racist this, anti-racism that. They don't, they don't want anti. They're making millions of dollars off of their hatred. Racism is big business. Do you understand that? The anti-racists are selling millions of copies of books, all while claiming to be oppressed. <laughs> you only one who's oppressed who's got an eight-digit bank account balance. I don't. But those are the people that Washington is talking about here. They can't afford for the that cancer to be cured. This is why they don't like people like me. Because I, I stand up here and proclaim that through the word of God, through faith in Christ, that cancer can be cured. Well, see, that will put them out of business. It's like this doctor said to his son. How do you expect to make a living practicing medicine that way? How do you expect to get paid? Practicing reconciliation through the word of God, through what the word of God says. You don't get paid that way. So buy my book. <laughs> Attend my seminar. Or like Nate's corporation. Or plan, uh, attend my diversity training. You get the point from what Washington was saying. Washington's words are important to consider because you're hearing a lot today about systemic racism in America. But understand this, okay? Understand this. I talked earlier about, uh, about defining your terms. Understand this. For something to be systemic is by definition. By objective definition, it means that it is literally everywhere and in everything. That's what systemic means by definition. If America were a systemically racist, racist nation, I wouldn't be standing here today. 
Listen, the problem not only in America but in the world at large is not systemic racism but systemic sin. Sin is the most systemic reality on the face of the earth. The British preacher and writer J.C. Ryle reminds us of the systemic nature of sin in his classic book titled Holiness where he writes this, quote, Sin is the universal disease of all mankind. Search the globe from east to west and from, fo- from pole to pole. Search every nation and every climate in the four quarters of the earth. Search every rank and class from the highest to the lowest. And under every circumstance and condition, the report will always be the same. The remotest islands in the Pacific Ocean, completely separate from Europe, Asia, Africa, and America, beyond the reach alike of oriental luxury, and Western arts and literature, islands inhabited by people ignorant of books, money, steam, and gunpowder, uncontaminated by the voices of, by the vices of modern civilization. These very islands have always been found, when first discovered, the abode of the vilest forms of lust, cruelty, deceit, and superstition. If the inhabitants have known nothing else, they have always known how to sin. Unquote. The sinful attitudes, biases, and prejudices that you and I harbor toward one another all have the same root cause and origin. That origin is sin in the heart of the individual. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in Mark chapter 7, verses 17 through 23. When he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable and said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? But because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. See, here's what what social justicians and crits, critical race theorists, they call themselves crits for short. What crits want to do, they want to propose to deal with race, but they have no answer for the ism. See, when you take a noun, a static noun like race, and you append the suffix ism to it, it then becomes a verb. And when it becomes a verb, a verb that denotes a behavioral attitude. And when, it, when, you, when, you, when you go from a noun to a verb to make it a behavioral attitude, that's where the heart comes in. That's what makes you a theologian on this, because only the gospel deals with the human heart, you see. And that's why the social justician only has a temporal, worldly, political, or economic solution to all these issues. They don't deal with the ism. They have no answer for that. Their answer is more discrimination through diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, through critical race theory, through social, uh, social and emotional learning. I want to talk about more of that this afternoon. 
but they don't have an answer. They don't have an answer. And for as much as they talk about racism, they don't have an answer for the ism. They don't. They argue that the ism is societal. So we need to change society. We need to vote for this, vote this in, vote this out, vote this person in, vote that person out. That's what Black Lives Matter was all about. And don't get me started on them. Those of you who, well, let me start on BLM for a second, by the way. <laughs> Those of you who are listening to the Just Thinking podcast with uh, my co-host, Virg Walker, and I, you know, last year we released six hours of content on Black Lives Matter through two, across two episodes. Those episodes, matter of fact, were so far-reaching that within a month of their being released, Black Lives Matter pretty much whitewashed their entire website of content that we quoted in those two episodes that were on their website. You went out there and they cleaned it up. It was unrecognizable. We told you then how that organization was structured. We told you then that when they say matter, it doesn't mean the same thing that you think it means. We told you then that they were involved in pagan African religious spiritualism. We told you then that they were funneling money illegally. Now we're seeing reports coming out where 60, 70, 80 million dollars all of a sudden goes uncounted for. Where the the co-founders of the organization are living in mansions. But nobody can trace the money. Well, if you were listening to Just Singing Podcast, you would know this already. (laughs) We told you this two years ago. Black Lives Matter is a Ponzi scheme. They generated billions with a B dollars from corporate donors alone. We told you this, and we cited our sources, by the way. But this is all to say, social justice has no answer for the ism. The 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. He said, sin poils the wellhead. Sin is in our brain. We think wrongly. Sin is in our heart. We love that which is evil. Sin bribes the judgment, intoxicates the will, and perverts the memory. We recollect a bad word when we forget a holy sentence. Like a sea which comes up and floods the continent, penetrating every valley, deluging every plain, and invading every mountain, so has sin penetrated our entire nature, unquote. And its pragmatic zeal to partner with the world on matters of social justice and racial reconciliation, the evangelical church today has succeeded only in complicating what the gospel makes very simple. So simple, in fact, that a child can understand it, according to Luke 18, 16. That simple gospel is this. Each of us has sinned against the holy God. That's Romans three twenty three. Our sinfulness is congenital. That's Romans five twelve. Our sin makes us subject to God's wrath. That's John 3.36. But by faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning and propitiatory work on the cross, sinners like you and me can be reconciled first and foremost to God and consequently reconciled to one another. That is the gospel simply stated. But when the simple message of the gospel is integrated with worldly philosophies and ideologies such as liberation theology, the social gospel, and the Marxist worldview that undergirds critical race theory and intersectionality, it loses that simplicity. 
Consequently, it becomes nothing more than an obscure humanistic proposition of moral and ethical rules that centers on mankind trying to save himself. Some of you may have seen <clears throat> video of Ibram X. Kendi doing an interview uh, at a liberal church up in New York City where he said with his own mouth, I do not subscribe to savior theology. I subscribe to a theology of liberation where it is up to us to bring the kingdom of God into reality on earth. That's what Kendi said. Yet his books, his book on how to be an anti-racist is being used in some evangelical churches in the United States as Bible study material. Kendi is making his millions of dollars off of white guilt. And some of you are helping him out. I'm sorry, I hate to be so blunt. Not really, but it's the truth. (laughs) Some of you are helping him out. If you're, if you're, let me put it this way. If you're not, if you're a person who's ethnically not black in this room, what have you done to me? How have you sinned against me? This is my first time ever seeing you. What do you have to be guilty about? Nothing. Yet you got people like Kendi and Robin D'Angelo and others making millions of dollars off of people's consciences. LeBron is another one. I'm convinced that the failure on the part of professing evangelical believers to embrace a proper, a proper biblical homoideology, which is to say a, bib- a proper biblical understanding of the innately sinful condition of mankind, is precisely why many professing believers believe as if skin color were dynamic and not static. That kind of misplaced thinking is totally contrary to what scripture declares about the innate depravity of the human heart. To view melanin, okay, to view melanin as dynamic and not static is to believe that skin color in and of itself possesses the inherent and autonomous capacity and ability to somehow cause a person to form sinful attitudes, prejudices, and biases about someone. Such misplaced reasoning is why I wholeheartedly reject the term racial reconciliation. That's why I put that term in air quotes. I totally denounce that term. Listen, races don't reconcile, hearts do. I'm so glad to see, I was glad to see the announcement earlier about uh, Dr. Stuart Scott coming here to do some biblical counseling uh, seminars. Um, my, My wife and I both do biblical counseling and have for years. When we were back in Atlanta, before we moved here, uh, biblical counseling is, is something that's near and dear to us. When you are counseling with an individual or a couple, in biblical counseling, you're targeting the heart every time. I just read that passage from Jesus' own words in Mark 7. That's what you're targeting. You're targeting the heart. That's what you're after. You're after heart change. So when people tell me, well, Darrell, we need to have a conversation about race. 
we, so you're telling me we need to talk about a noun that has no inherent power to do anything. No. What they mean is we need to talk about what's in here. It's the same with a marriage couple. It's no different. You got a married couple at each other, going at each other. It's the same thing. You don't have one type of reconciliation for the racist and another type of reconciliation for the married couple. Listen to me. Your melanin does not feel. It does not think. It does not love. It does not hate. It does not form intent, whether for good or ill, nor can it comprehend or discern or distinguish between good and evil. Your melanin does none of those things because it cannot do any of those things. To argue otherwise is to deny, to deny what Jesus clearly declared in the passage I read earlier from Mark 7. That the genesis of all disharmony and disunity that exists in the world, not only today but throughout human history, is a direct byproduct of the sin nature that indwells each and every one of us. We don't need to talk about race. As believers, our collective failure to apply what is taught by Christ himself in Mark 7 is what has given rise to a doctrine that I've termed sin by proxy. Sin by proxy. As it relates specifically to the concept of racial reconciliation, sin by proxy is the unbiblical idea that this present generation of white people should be regarded as collectively guilty of historical sins allegedly perpetrated by their ancestors against black people solely on the basis of their ethnicity and consequently that they must collectively repent of and make reparations for those alleged offenses. That's sin by proxy. So if you're white, you're guilty by virtue of existing. You're guilty of supposed sins perpetrated upon people who look like me by people who look like you and your family line just by virtue of existing. So you owe me even though you haven't done anything to me. That's sin by proxy. You are by proxy guilty for what is assumed that your ancestors did against people like me. Now, let me let you set you guys straight on something. <clears throat> you may have heard me say on several episodes of our podcast that if you were to ever visit my office at Grace to You, which I hope, I hope you do if you're ever down in the Valencia area, come by. I would love to meet you guys and give you guys a tour of the ministry there. But if you were to come into my office, you would see more books on slavery than any other topic except theology. I've studied slavery for years. I've read more than just Martin Luther King Jr., okay? I have more books on slavery in my office than any other subject with the exception of theology. I stand before you today as a descendant of black African slave owners. Owners. My paternal ancestry can be traced back to the Balanta people in Guinea-Bissau, West Africa. The Balanta people were rice harvesters. They were rice farmers. 
They grew rice. That's how they made a living. The Bolanta willingly and volitionally partnered with the Portuguese to sell their own people into slavery in exchange for farming tools. You've seen the show Mythbusters? Well, I'm a narrative buster. <laughs> the narrative that slavery was only one-sided and that only white people own slaves is a lie. It's a myth. It's a myth. There would have been no slavery in America were it not for black Africans who looked like me. Breaking news, I know. So when someone from the 1619 Project gets up and says, well, 400 years of slavery, blah, blah, blah. No, that's a lie. Even if you go back to the transatlantic slave trade in the mid-1400s, even then the slave trade was already global. It was already global. It was already happening. It's still happening today as I stand here. The United States didn't become a nation until 1776. So if you want to be technically accurate, you can't say that the United States was engaged in slavery for 400 years because it wasn't. The United States is not even 400 years old. <clears throat> There's a book you should get, though. It's called The Atlas of the Transatlantic Slave Trade. Atlas of the Transatlantic Slave Trade. Get it. It's about this thick. But it's illustrated with all types of statistics, maps, graphing every single slave voyage that ever occurred. Matter of fact, there's a, sway, uh, there's a website called slavevoyages.org. Slavevoyages.org. You can go out and see an, a, an interactive uh, map of the voyages over the entire period of the transatlantic slave trade. And what you're going to see, contrary to the narrative, is that North America... If you were to list the top ten nations that appear, uh, uh, participated in the uh, uni- uh, in, in the transatlantic slave trade, I'll just go ahead and say the United States for sake of conversation. What what you're hearing in the narrative today is from people like Black Lives Matters and critical race theorists, people like the 1619 Project, that America was the pr- primary offender in that. But you're probably drinking coffee this morning, with from co- made from coffee beans that originated in, in the nation that, that engaged in, in, in the more, most trafficking of slaves than any other nation, that's Brazil. If you were to list the top 10 nations, the United States would be number eight or nine. Do you realize that over that 460-year period, fewer than 300,000 slaves landed on North American soil? But when you hear the narrative out here today, only the United States is guilty. people vacation in the Caribbean, Jamaica, Brazil. They're vacationing and spending their money in countries that deported more, millions more slaves than were deported to the United States. But you don't hear that as part of the narrative. It's like Washington was saying, that's, they can't make their money by telling you the truth. If they tell you the truth, they stop making money. 
scripture clearly teaches that each of us individually will be accountable to God for our sin. That's Ezekiel 18 and Romans 14. This idea of sin by proxy is a lie. Sin by proxy promotes the unbiblical concept that sin and its penalty can be vicariously, retroactively, and arbitrarily transferred from one person to another. Is this idea of sin by proxy that has fed and fueled the propagation of such unbiblical philosophies as white guilt and white fragility, even within the church. So much so that many white evangelical Christians have chosen to remain in the closet, so to speak, for fear of being labeled racist for saying anything that might even be remotely construed as going against the current social justice narrative, which is to portray all black people as oppressed and all white people as oppressors. But the prejudicial feelings and sentiments that you and I hold toward each other is a direct and tangible byproduct of the enmity that resides in our hearts toward God. It is a reality that is affirmed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 7, where he says this. He says the mindset on the flesh is hostile. That's the same word enmity. It's hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And yet despite that truth, the false gospel of racial reconciliation continues to be preached from the pulpits of many evangelical churches today. But nowhere in scripture is the term race used in the same context as it is consistently employed today by the culture. Evangelical churches were jumping on the racial reconciliation bandwagon after the killing of George Floyd. People ask me all the time when that happened. White people would come up to me and say, well, Darrell, what should we do to help the black people? I want to help the black people. George Floyd was killed on May 25th, 2020. My response to those questions is, what were you doing? You need to do the same thing you were doing on May 24th, 2020. And May 23rd, 2020. We produced an episode, at least an episode called George Floyd and the Gospel. It's our most listened to episode to date. Almost a million and a half downloads. Our podcast in the four years that we've existed has more than four million downloads. The George Floyd episode is more than 25% of that. I said in that episode, I have no interest in what happened to George Floyd beyond that fact that he was a fellow image bearer of God. That he was a similar skin tone to me had nothing to do with it. And I thought Virgil Walker made a brilliant point in the episode. He said, as Christians, what we really need to do is put ourselves in the shoes of Derek Chauvin. Because in the same way Chauvin had his knee on the neck of George Floyd, we have our knee on the neck of Christ. So don't come to me talking about George Floyd. No one would have asked me that question if George Floyd was white. The culture today defines race primarily in terms of skin color. It makes no distinction between race and the more biblically accurate term ethnicity. If you don't have, I don't know, maybe some of you don't highlight in your Bible, but I do. 
<clears throat> but regardless of whether you do or not, you need to know Acts 17 26. You need to make a note of Acts chapter 17 26. This, this verse is a one verse apologetic against any conversation around race in, 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 the, in the way that the culture uses the term. Acts 17, 26 says, and, from, and, and he made from one man every nation to live on the face of the earth. And he made from one man every nation to live on the face of the earth. That one man is Adam. Every nation to live on the face of the earth. That English word nation in the Greek is the Greek word ethnos, from where we get our English word ethnicity. The proper biblical term is ethnicity, not race. There are not, as Phil said, there are not multiple races. There's one race, and in scripture that word is in the Greek is genus, meaning there's one type of human being. All of us who bear the image of God, there are not multiple races. There is one type comprised of multiple ethnicities. The biblical word is ethnicity, not race. I cannot encourage you strongly enough to start using that word and stop using the terms of the culture. No such thing as race or racism. The word is ethnicity. But that's what the culture does. The culture defines race primarily in terms of skin color. Depending on the level, level of melanin you possess, the culture determines your race to be either white if you have less melanin or black if you have more melanin. But even science has proven that the concept of human races is rooted in a fallacy. So take scripture out of it. Even science has debunked that idea. As the late Dr. Robert Walt Sussman writes in his book, The Myth of Race, quote, what many people do not realize is that this racial structure is not based on reality. Anthropologists have shown for many years now that there is no biological reality to human race. There are no major complex behaviors that directly correlate with what might be considered human racial characteristics. There is no inherent relationship between intelligence, law-abidingness, or economic practices, and race. Just as there is no relationship between nose size, height, blood group, or skin color, and any set of complex human behaviors. However, over the past 500 years, we have been taught by an informal, mutually reinforcing consortium of intellectuals, politicians, statesmen, business and economic leaders and their books that human racial biology is real and that certain races are biologically better than others. The biologically deterministic racial worldview has been tested and disproven consistently and yet its proponents have remained resistant to all empirical scientific evidence for more than 500 years, unquote. In April 2018, National Geographic published a special issue titled The Race Issue, which included an article titled, listen to this title. This is National Geographic. There's no scientific basis for race. It's a made-up label. That article 
included a very important yet little known fact by a man about a man named Dr. Samuel Morton, a contemporary of Darwin. In that article, it says this of Dr. Samuel Morton, quote, in the first half of the 19th century, one of America's most prominent scientists was a doctor named Samuel Morton. Morton lived in Philadelphia, and he collected human skulls. He wasn't choosy about his suppliers. He accepted skulls scavenged from battlefields and snatched from catacombs. With each skull, Morton performed the same procedure. He stuffed it with pepper seeds. Later, he switched to lead shot, which he then decanted to ascertain the volume of the brain case. All right. So he's measuring how much pepper seed and lead shot each cranium could contain. Morton believed that people could be divided into five races and that these represented separate acts of creation by God. The races had distinct characters, which corresponded to their place in a divinely determined hierarchy. So Morton argued, well, this is the God, this is the way God planned it. The races had distinct characters, he said. Morton's craniometry showed, he claimed, that whites or Caucasians were the most intelligent of the races. East Asians Morton used the term Mongolian, though ingenious and susceptible of cultivation were, were one step down. Next came Southeast Asians, followed by Native Americans. Blacks, or Ethiopians, as Morton called them, were at the bottom. In the decades before the Civil War, Morton's ideas were quickly taken up by the defenders of slavery. You see the progression of this false ideology and what happened as a result. When Morton died in 1851, the Charleston Medical Journal in South Carolina praised him for, quote, giving to the Negro his true position as an inferior race, unquote. Today, Samuel Morton is, the known, is known as the father of scientific racism. So many of the horrors of the past few centuries can be traced to the idea that one race is inferior to that of another. A tour of his collection is a haunting experience. To an uncomfortable degree, we still live with Morton's legacy. Racial distinctions continue to shape our politics, our neighborhoods, and our sense of self. This is the case even though what science actually has to tell us about race is just the opposite of what Morton contended, unquote. Now, the irony of a guy like Dr. Samuel Morton is that Imbrim X. Kendi and people like him teach the same thing. Ibram X. Kendi is promoting the same ideology of scientific racism that Morton promoted. In a commencement address delivered at Western Reserve College in 1854 titled The Claims of the Negro Ethnologically Considered, the noted abolitionist, author, and educator, and former slave Frederick Douglass wholeheartedly and unambiguously denounced Dr. Samuel Morton's conclusion. Before I get to Douglas's quote, notice that Douglas titled this address, The Claims of the Negro Ethnologically Considered. He didn't say the claims of the Negro racially considered. Any of you ever been to a restaurant that specializes in racial cuisine? Any of you ever read a racial cookbook? No. 
What do the restaurants specialize in? Ethnic cuisine. You read cookbooks on ethnic cuisine. Not racial cuisine, just another example. Racial, racial is not the word. I'm sorry I'm getting so animated about this, but I want you to get this through your heads. No restaurant specializes in racial cuisine. Virgil and I did an episode, one of the earlier episodes of our Just In Your Podcast, we titled A Biblical Theology of Soul Food. <coughs> Title's kind of funny. But I encourage you to go back to listen to that episode. Go to our website or subscribe, better, subscribe to our podcast, Just Thinking. Go to our website, justthinking.me, click the podcast link, scroll down to the bottom. You'll see the episode titled A Biblical, Theo- Biblical Theology of Soul Food. <coughs> We tell the story in the episode of how that episode came to be. But just real quick, what we do in that episode, we take you on an expositional journey through scripture, starting in Genesis 11 and the diaspora from the Tower of Babel, where God dispersed the people to live on all the face of the earth. We take you from Genesis 11 to Acts 17, 26 to use scripture to explain to you. Because Acts 17, 26 contains the same language as, the, as it does in Genesis 11 to explain to you biblically how you ended up with Cuban food and Indian food and the different types of music and the different types of culture. That's how you got there. So it's important, as I said earlier, to not use the language of the culture. You must use biblical vernacular. In your apologetics, the word is ethnic, not race. But to get to Frederick Douglass's quote, he totally denounced Dr. Samuel Morton's conclusion, saying this, quote, Common sense is scarcely needed to detect the absence of manhood in a monkey or to recognize its presence in a Negro. His speech, his reason, his power to acquire and to retain knowledge, his heaven-erected face, his habitudes, his hopes, his fears, his aspirations, his prophecies, plant him and the brute creation a distinction as eternal, plant, plant in him and uh, plant, plant between him and the brute creation a distinction as eternal as it is palpable. Away, therefore, with all the scientific moonshine that would connect men with monkeys, that would have the world believe that humanity, instead of resting on its own characteristic pedestal, gloriously independent, is a sort of sliding scale. See, this is what Morton argued. He Morton that humanity was a sliding scale. Douglas called that kind of thinking scientific moonshine. A sliding scale making one extreme brother to the orangutan and the other to angels and all the rest intermediaries. Tried by all the usual and all the unusual tests, whether mental, moral, physical, or psychological, the Negro is a man. Considering him as possessing knowledge or needing knowledge, his elevation or his degradation, his virtues or his vices, whichever road you take, you reach the same conclusion, the Negro is a man. 
his good and his bad, his innocence and his guilt, his joys and his sorrows, proclaim his manhood in speech that all mankind practically and readily understand. But you see what Morton's conclusion led to. Somebody believed in his craniometry studies solely on the basis of the size of a skull as opposed to believe in Genesis 127 that we're all created in the image of God the idea of human races is a myth it is a myth both theologically scientifically and biologically for centuries society and sadly to a great extent the church has unquestionably bought into that myth though The resulting damage has been well documented over the annals of both societal and ecclesiastical history, not only in America, but around the world. Man-centered efforts to reconcile people of different ethnicities is nothing new. And yet, invariably, those efforts have proven futile in ameliorating what is the root cause of the enmity that exists between human beings, namely our sin. By definition... Reconciliation is a volitional act that occurs at the level of the human heart. Skin color plays no role whatsoever. None. This is what I meant earlier when I said your skin color is static. It does nothing. You never ask your skin, what do you think about this? (laughs) Should I hate this person? By definition, reconciliation is a volitional act that occurs at the level of the human heart. Your skin color plays no role. Only the regenerative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which alone can turn our stony hearts to flesh, that's Ezekiel 36, can remedy what separates us both from God and from one another. Apart from the gospel, listen to this. Think this through with me. Apart from the gospel and what the gospel says about this, the sin nature, Apart from the gospel, how else can it be understood how something as innocuous as the color of a person's skin can be observed with a person's eyes, processed in their mind, and formed as sinfully prejudicial attitudes in their heart? How else can you explain that? Because your skin does, my skin is not offensive to you. It doesn't offend you. It is not a weapon. So how else can you explain Somebody just seeing the color of your skin and then developing hatred towards you. Only the gospel explains that. You don't need to buy how to be anti-racist and read that. You don't need to buy Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, to understand that. There is no explanation other than the prob- that the problem is spiritual. It's not sociological. And what you're going to find, the more critical race theory material you read, <clears throat> you're finding that it's all written by people who have PhDs in sociology, education, and psychology. And I read a ton of them. All secular. All of them. I wholly wholly concur with what Pastor John MacArthur said. He said this, quote, 
As Christians, we ought to have a moral and social influence in our communities. We ought to use the rights granted to us to promote morality and decency in the public arena. But that's not the sum total of our responsibility to the world. We can't settle for mere social change and behavior modification. We must bring the light of the truth to bear in a world blinded by sin. And we must do what we can to halt society's decay, not through protest and political action, but through the bold proclamation of the gospel. Unquote. Jupiter Hammond, who lived his entire life as a slave, is now a free man. He's eternally free. But the truth is, Hammond was already a free man, even in the midst of his earthly enslavement. How could I possibly say that, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you how. Because liberating us spiritually from the bondage and penalty of, of our sin is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. That's Galatians 5.1. It says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to rest in the reality that the same God who spoke into existence the heavens and the earth is in complete control of everything that occurs in it. Consider that against the backdrop of these words from the 20th century theologian and apologist Cornelius Van Til, who in his book Christian Apologetics says this, quote, I feel that the whole of history and civilization would be unintelligible to me if it were not for my belief in God. So true is this that I propose to argue that unless God is back of everything, you cannot find meaning in anything. Conversely, Dr. Jeff Perswell, Dean of Sovereign Grace Pastors College in Louisville, Kentucky, said this in his book titled Worldliness, subtitled Resisting the Seduction of a Fallen World, quote, Before we examine how we're to relate to the world, we must understand it. We need a biblical worldview a framework for understanding our human existence and environment that accords with reality. If you heard Phil today and for the men who were here last night, you could really sum up the state of the world right now in that they just have no concept of reality anymore. But Perswell says we need a biblical worldview and a framework for understanding our environment that accords with reality. Whether we're aware of it or not, each of us has a set of beliefs and assumptions about ourselves and about the world we inhabit. Through the lens of these beliefs and assumptions, our worldview, we interpret our experiences, draw conclusions, and make decisions. Ultimately, our worldview determines how we live. That's why it's critical that these beliefs align with Scripture, for only there do we find God's take on our lives, on this world, indeed on reality is itself. The Bible sets forth the contours of our existence, answering fundamental questions about our identity, our environment, our relationships, and our very purpose in life. That's why this, con this conference is happen happening. This is actually a conference about worldview. You may reduce it to wokeness and critical race theory as subsets of that. But this is really a worldview conference. Because this is what you're up against. When you go out these doors, you're in a battle over worldviews. That's what you're doing. That's what you're engaged in. Now, as I prepare to close, I want to shift gears for a moment and say a word about justice. Because in the current social political milieu in which we find ourselves, the word justice is often mentioned by evangelical social justicians in terms of preferred outcomes. As proposed to impartially regardless of outcome, impartiality and regardless of outcome. So when you hear most people say the word justice, what it, what it is, is it's a subjective bias that is intrinsically built into that word. What they want to see is a preferred outcome. That's what they want. They don't want justice 
that's objective and impartial. They don't want that. They want a preferred outcome. That was the case with the Trayvon Martin trial. That was the case with the Derek Chauvin trial. That was the case, uh, Derek Chauvin with, with uh, George Floyd. That was the case with the Breonna Taylor situation. Most people have within that, that con their construct of justice a built-in subjective bias. They don't want true justice. They don't want that. There's an old maxim that says justice delayed is justice denied. But those words could not be more wrong in terms of what scripture teaches. As far as God is concerned, justice is neither delayed nor denied. God has promised that his holy, righteous, and impartial judgment will be meted out to those deserving other, of it, either in this life or in the next. Another scripture I want you to make note of is 1 Timothy 5.24. This is a one verse, again, a one verse apologetic that you want to share with anyone who wants to bring up the topic of justice and injustice. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.24 that the sins of some will be dealt with in this life, but for others their sins will be dealt with after. That's why I say with God there is no such thing as justice being delayed or denied. God will mete out his justice either here or in the next life. What we have to do is take the attitude of a Jupiter, Jupiter Hammond and leave that up to God. But what you can't do is have your construct of justice framed within some sort of subjective um, definition that's outside the objective parameters of the word of God. There can be, when you're talking about justice, there can be no bias at all. There can't be. Go read 1 Kings 3 in the account of the two women who appeared before Solomon. Excellent example of equity and equality, justice and injustice. There are others, but I'll save that for later. To God who reigns over everything that occurs in his creation, whether good or evil, that's Proverbs 15.3. He will ensure, either in this life or in the life to come, that his righteous justice is apportioned to every person to whom it is due. What evangelical social justicians must understand and accept is that scripture never promises that we will have relief from injustice in the sinful world. <laughs> Why in the world? Every one of us in here would acknowledge that this world is a sinful world. Why would you accept? Why would you expect perfect justice in a sinful world? That just they don't mix. It's oil and water. You should expect injustice in this world. Ecclesiastes 5.8. If you see injustice in the land, do not be surprised at the sight, it says, for one politician looks after another politician and there are other politicians over them. What you should be surprised at is if there's justice in the world is what you should be surprised at. It is naive to expect perfect justice in a world that is inherently imperfect. Justice is never perfect when left to the determination of imperfect sinners. It's imperfect because of enmity, not ethnicity. Scripture is clear that the world in which we live rests in the power of the evil one. That's 1 John 5, 19. 
Only in the new heaven and the new earth will perfect and unadulterated justice and righteousness be a reality. And that reality will be eternal and never ending. That's Second Peter 3.13 and Revelation 7.9. Listen, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come into the world to save society. But see, the social justice will have, they would invert that. That's what the, that's, that's liberation theology in a nutshell. That Jesus came to save society. No, he didn't. He came to save sinners. The fallacy of racial reconciliation is that our need for reconciliation is rooted in the enmity that exists between us and God, not in erasing any ethnic, social, cultural, or economic distinctions or differences that exist between us. Society cannot hope to remedy with temporal solutions what is fundamentally a spiritual malady. The only solution is what Jesus himself preached, and that solution is that you must be born again. Thank you all very much. I appreciate your time.